You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless information. So here we are. We finally reached the concluding episode of my three-part series on the Mars, Iowa from the 1930s. As a quick refresher, all three stories are tied together by the odd bequest of Lamar's lawyer T.M. Zink. He asked that his estate be invested for a period of 75 years after which the proceeds would be used to build a womanless library. And as you already know, the court voided his will and his daughter Margareta Becker inherited his entire fortune. If you recall, a promissory note valued at $10,000 had been filed against the estate. It had been signed by Zink in April of 1930, just five months prior to his death, and if valid, could have wiped out a large portion of his estate. So let me give you a little background on that note. Two days following the death of Zinc, a bank in Lamar's received an envelope postmarked Kansas City. Inside was a letter from a woman named Irene M. Brown, and it included the original promissory note. Bank officials were immediately concerned about the validity of the claim since the document had not been sworn and affirmed. You know, so correspondence then occurred between the bank and Ms. Brown's attorneys. They went back and forth but no resolution could be achieved between the two parties. And that's when a suit was filed on Ms. Brown's behalf with the court. A copy of the note was included with the documents provided to the court, but almost immediately after it was filed, the suit was withdrawn. It has been well established that woman-hater T.M. Zink was not hurting for money at the time of his death, so it really seems surprising he would promise Ms. Brown, you know, after all, she is a woman, such a large amount of money. So the filing of the suit was brought to the attention of Zink's daughter, Margreta, and she obtained a photostatic copy of the note. Now, just as a little side note here, keep in mind that the photocopier had yet to be invented by Chester Carlson. The photostatic process was basically just as it sounds. Documents were photographed onto long rolls of film, you know, prior to being developed. Of course, anything to do with the Zinc estate was certain to sell more newspapers, so reporters in Lamar's, Des Moines, and Sioux City quickly jumped on the story. They all attempted to track Irene Brown down, but were unsuccessful. The woman, it just, she just seemed to have vanished into the ether. No one could find her. With such a large portion of her inheritance at risk, Mrs. Becker decided to seek out the help of professionals. 
she turned the investigation over to the Burns Detective Agency in New York, and investigators obtained their first clue to solving the mystery in Laurel, Nebraska. There, they learned that a woman named Mabel Trout Knox owned some farmland in the area, and, like so many others during the Depression, she had run into trouble paying her mortgage. In an effort to avoid losing the property, she provided the mortgage holder, that's Union Central Life Insurance, she provided them a promissory note for $2,500. Now, if she can't afford to pay a mortgage, she certainly doesn't have $2,500 to give them. But she was certain that she would have it shortly. That's because the note had been provided by the mysterious Irene Brown and endorsed over by Mrs. Knox to Union Central. And just where was Irene Brown going to get all that money from? Well, that was actually quite simple. She insinuated that she would be shortly receiving a large payout from the estate of, well, you know who, from the estate of T.M. Zink. Starting there, detectives soon learned on and off over a period of few months, Irene Brown had been lodging at the Cataract Hotel in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. A little sleuthing determined that Irene looked very similar to Mrs. Knox. So similar, in fact, that they could pass for twins. And there was a very good reason for this. Detectives determined that the two women were the same person. Mrs. Knox had invented the Irene Brown persona to fraudulently obtain money from the Zinc estate. On March 10, 1932, a Plymouth County grand jury handed down an indictment against Mrs. Knox, charging her with forging of a legal document. This news came as a great shock to the citizens of Lamars. Mabel Knox was a highly regarded member of the local community. She had been active in her church, she was a member of various church organizations, a strong supporter of social reforms. She was even the president of the Plymouth County chapter of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, you know, the WCTU. You know, forging a promissory note like this, it just—it was the last thing anyone would expect from such an upstanding citizen. It was through her work as a prohibitionist that Mrs. Knox first made headlines. At 9.30 p.m. on Saturday, June 8th of 1929, Mabel was standing outside Joe Dusser's soft drink parlor, which was located at 22 Central Avenue Southeast in Lamar's, that's when she overheard one of the customers state, quote, let's go in and get a drink. So she zooms right over to the mayor's office, and the next thing you know, the supposed speakeasy was being raided by Mrs. Knox and police officer Faye Turpening. A large jeering crowd gathered outside the parlor as the two searched the place. No liquor, and the press spelled it L-I-K-K-E-R. No liquor was found, but May stood by her claim that there was plenty of alcohol on the premises prior to that raid. She felt they just hid it well. In late June of 1929, Joe Dusser turned around and sued May Knox for $15,000 in damages. That would be about $241,000 adjusted for inflation, you know, almost a quarter of a million bucks. And just who did he get to prepare and file the lawsuit? Well, if you've been following these three stories on Lamar's, you probably already know the answer. Joe retained the services of TM Zinc's law firm of Cass, Zinc, and Cass. 
Of course, Zink would never get to represent Joe Duster in court, and that's because he died on September 11th of 1930, and soon after that, that promissory note that was supposedly forged by Mrs. Knox made its first appearance. It wouldn't be until March 7th, 1931, that Zink's bizarre womanless library request would be invalidated by the court. One month later, on Monday, April 20th of 1931, a jury was seated for the case of Joe Duster versus Mabel Knox. Opening statements were made, a few witnesses were called to the stand, and then the judge announced on Tuesday that the two sides were discussing proposals to settle the case. At noon, the judge announced that no agreement had been reached and everyone should take a break for lunch. Upon their return, it was announced that the two sides had finally settled the case. Joe Duster agreed to withdraw his lawsuit if Mrs. Knox would make a public announcement that no alcoholic beverages were found at his parlor and that the statements that she made against the establishment were unjustified. Mrs. Knox suddenly became suspiciously ill, and you'll see this is kind of a pattern through the story, and she was unable to be present in the court at the time that the judge made his announcement. So, her husband Sumner sat with her attorney as the following statement was read in the courtroom. Quote, It is undisputed that on the occasion of the alleged search of Joe Duster's soft drink parlor on June 8, 1929, no intoxicating liquors were found, nor was there anything discovered that would tend to show that Duster had been engaged in the illegal sale of intoxicating liquor at that place. And that's the end of the quote. Both sides agreed to split the court expenses, and for most people, that's you and me, that would have been the last time that they would have appeared in the news. But that was not the case for May Knox. Less than one year later, Mabel was back in the news for pretending to be Irene M. Brown and forging that $10,000 IOU against the Zinc estate. This time, she was placed under arrest and her bond was set at $4,500, which would be about $80,000 today. Mrs. Knox vehemently denied all the charges and was certain that the real Irene Brown, who she described as being quiet and shy, would soon step forward and clear up this entire mess. Less than two weeks later, Mabel and her husband Sumner were arrested in Kansas City, get this, after the couple attempted to hire a woman to impersonate the mysterious Irene M. Brown. Now, their plan was quite simple. The woman would come forward and testify that she had met TM Zink in a hotel cafe. Of course, they became fast friends, and then she loaned him the $10,000. Once it was proven that Irene Brown was a real person, Mabel Knox planned to file a $50,000 damage suit against the Zink estate for malicious prosecution. A portion of that monetary award would be used to pay off the impersonator that they had hired. But the mistake that they made was that one of the women that they interviewed for the job was married to a federal postal inspector. Mm -mm -mm. Oops. Her bondsman, which was Morris Levitch of Sioux City, immediately withdrew his bond. Mrs. Knox was brought back home and thrown right back into the county jail. Her trial for the forged document opened six weeks later on May 22nd of 1932. Mrs. Knox was apparently too weak to walk into the courtroom and had to be carried in. 
Then, just as the jury was seated, she dramatically fainted and had to be taken home. She was still in a supposed, quote, coma the next morning and was ordered to be admitted to the hospital. The remainder of the trial was canceled and Mrs. Knox continued her recovery in county jail. Then, on December 9th, she finally admitted that she had forged the promissory note and pled guilty to the charge of forgery. The very next day, Mabel Trail Knox became prisoner number 841 at the state penitentiary in Fort Madison. Admission records describe her as being a 40-year-old Catholic woman who stood 5 foot 9 inches tall, that's about 175 centimeters, and she weighed 198.5 pounds, or about 90 kilograms. They described her as having blue eyes, light brown hair, a medium complexion, and was college educated, which is quite unusual for a woman in those days. Now, if you're like me, you probably never read the legal notices in the classified section of the newspaper. Well, someone was paying attention while reading the September 8, 1933 publication of the Lamar's semi-weekly Sentinel. Hidden away in the fine print on page 6 was a notice accusing Mrs. Knox of another impersonation. This time, a man named R.J. Kohler was requesting that the court foreclose on two properties that Mr. and Mrs. Knox owned in Lamar's. The claim was that Mabel poses one Mabel Broughton and used phony collateral to secure a $1,070 loan from him. Ultimately, these properties and several others that the couple owned were all foreclosed upon over the next few years. Maynox was released from prison as scheduled and did her best to stay out of trouble. Let's just say she was not very good at it. She was once again front page headlines for an incident that occurred on Monday, February 7th of 1938. A group of approximately 100 WPA, that's Works Progress Administration members, met with Plymouth County officials to request an increase in their hourly wage. Her husband Sumner Knox was their spokesman, but he expressed his personal grievances instead of representing the group as a whole. It seems that Sumner had been dismissed from his duties a few weeks prior and blamed the county board. And that's when Harry Cannon, a representative from the state's welfare office, opened his mouth and told Sumner that he personally fired him because of both his refusal to follow directives and the fact that he could no longer be trusted. Mabel Knox then jumped up and started screaming at Mr. Cannon. She then stormed across the room and slapped him several times. One blow was so intense that it reportedly knocked out a crown of a tooth. Police were called, but everything was calm by the time of their arrival on the scene. Just two months later, May Knox would once again be in the news. This time, however, she was not in any sort of trouble. I know you find that shocking. Instead, she was challenging her local elected officials in court over their decision to hire a tax ferret. You know, what we call a tax bounty hunter, someone who collects unpaid taxes. The group that she represented sought to get an injunction while the legality of the tax ferret was determined. The case was ultimately dismissed for want of prosecution. And that's because May Knox was about to become the center of perhaps the greatest mystery ever to occur in Lamar's. A story so great that it would capture the attention of the entire nation.
In November of 1938, rumors started to spread around town that Mabel's mother, that's 80-year-old Lucinda Trow, had not been seen in quite some time. In her later years, she rarely ever left home and would often be seen sitting on her back porch or in front of her window, but that had since ceased. It was her late husband's $90 per month, which is about $1,500 per month today, his $90 per month Civil War veterans pension that she used to meet expenses. Where, oh, where could Lucinda Trow be? That was the big question in Lamar's at the time. On Monday, November 7th of 1938, two reporters from the Lamar's Globe Post decided to make a visit to Mrs. Trow's home to investigate. Well, can you guess who answered the door? You are correct. It was her daughter, Mabel Trow Knox. It seems due to a lack of income, she had been forced to take up residence in her mother's home. That also meant that she was also being supported by that $90 per month Civil War pension. May told the reporters that she didn't allow anyone to see her mother because it caused her to become agitated. And that ultimately meant a sleepless night for both women after the visitors left. The reporters said that they needed to interview mom so they could end all further inquiries as to her well-being. So Mabel agreed and the reporters came back at 3 p.m. to interview Mrs. Trow. But when they arrived, there was no one home. Since Mrs. Knox had a history of fainting spells, you know, remember that supposed coma during the trial? Reporters were afraid that she may have had a heart attack. So they reported the matter to the police. Permission to enter the premises was given by the Lamar City Council two days later, that's Wednesday, and the house was finally entered. No one was inside except for Mabel's Pekingese. Later in the day, a local constable went to the house to padlock it, but this time he found that Mrs. Knox was indeed home. On Thursday the 10th, the Lamar's Globe Post supposedly received a tip that Mrs. Knox's dog was lying dead in her backyard. Now, the reporters didn't find a dog, but they were soon approached by neighbor Charles Bingenheimer. He informed the reporters that Mabel had taken her mom to Nebraska to celebrate Thanksgiving with relatives and asked him to keep watch on the house while she was gone. He agreed, and she lent him a key. Fearing that the dog may be sick or dying inside, and I do suspect this is a ruse on the part of the reporters, Mr. Bingenheimer agreed to allow the reporters into the house. Immediately upon entering, they were confronted by the sounds of a woman moaning in distress. So they quickly went up to Lucinda Trow's bedroom, and there they found May Knox lying in her mother's bed, nearly passed out and in great pain. She declined the help of a doctor, but she was willing to accept the ultimate cure for everything. Orange Sherbert. Yep, just a little orange sherbet, and she was cured. She then explained why she broke off the interview with the reporters on Monday. Quote, My mother has changed so much in recent years, I was afraid people wouldn't believe that she was the same woman. I thought it best to take her to Nebraska where she wouldn't be annoyed. Mabel explained that the two had driven to Nebraska City in a car operated by friend Ed Roach. 
So upon completion of the interview, a reporter called Mr. Roach in Nebraska, and he did confirm that he had been in Lamar's on Monday, and he did visit Mabel. But the story he told was far different from what Mrs. Knox had told the reporters. It seems that May had been sending love letters to Ed Roach claiming that she was unmarried, that both of her parents were dead, and that she was in fact 10 years younger than her real age. In one letter, Mabel wrote that she, quote, needed lovin' and requested that Ed come get her. She did add one condition to her offering of love, and that was that he had to give her $500 to help pay off her mortgage. No one really knows why Ed went to see Mrs. Knox that day. Ed told reporters he was considering hiring her as a housekeeper, but he may have had more lustful thoughts on his mind. He claimed that Mrs. Knox did not impress his nine-year-old daughter Geneva, and the two opted to return home without her. But this may have been the save face. The fact that police later discovered bushels of correspondence that Mabel had with men all across the country who had advertised for wives suggests that Ed may have really come to Lamar's, you know, for the lovin'. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Caught in what was clearly a lie, Mrs. Knox told the sheriff on Friday a totally different story. Quote, My mother left with Sumner Knox the latter part of May 1938 in a car driven by Clifford Smith, a cousin of Sumner's. They went to Wisconsin, either to Monroe or Janesville. She continued, I haven't heard from my mother in a long time. I did hear it first when Sumner took her away from Janesville, Wisconsin. She claimed that Sumner spiked her mother's tea with sleeping tablets and that he, quote, took my mother away from me because he said that I didn't take the right care of her. And that's the end of the quote. So you're starting to get a sense of deja vu here. You know, first May is found nearly passed out on her bed, and then she's coming up with two crazy stories to explain it all away. All that's really missing from this puzzle is an attempt by Mabel to go somewhere and hire an imposter, you know, to play the part of her mother. Shocking as it may sound, it was later learned that she did just exactly that. On that first day when reporters arrived to the empty trow home for their scheduled interview, Mabel was really hitching a ride to Sioux City. There, she lodged with a friend and then proceeded to contact a local senior home, requesting that one of the women take a taxi to Lamar's and impersonate her mom. Her clever plan was squashed when home officials learned of the proposal, and supposedly Mrs. Knox was willing to take anyone, no matter how sick, to stand in for her mom. Of course, no one was buying her latest claim that Sumner had drugged her mom, so police decided to ask Mrs. Knox to voluntarily go to a nearby rest home while they continued their investigation. She agreed. 
police soon deduced that her mom was neither in Nebraska or Wisconsin. They were now certain that she had not left home at all. Instead, they believed she was buried somewhere in the backyard of the family home. And just how did they come to this conclusion? Let's just say that Mrs. Knox wasn't very good at keeping her mouth shut. During a conversation with a friend, Mrs. Knox supposed a remark, quote, If they find a body in the garden, be sure it is my mother. Could she make it any more obvious? <laughs> On Saturday, November 12th, the digging commenced. Behind the house was a garden mound approximately 15 feet in length, that's about four and a half meters, and bordered with bricks. One portion of the mound had sunken in and seemed like the best place to excavate, and it really didn't take long. Less than two feet down, that's about 60 centimeters, the shovel started to uncover a large wooden box. Well, it wasn't really a box, so to speak. It was a veneer kitchen cabinet that measured approximately 65 inches long, 14 inches wide, and 18 inches deep. It was about 165 by 36 by 46 centimeters. The cupboard was open and the shrunken remains of an elderly woman were discovered. Mabel's brother, Len Trow, identified the body as that of his missing mom, Lucinda. Now that the remains of Mrs. Trow had been uncovered, the police began to wonder whether additional bodies could be buried in that yard. You see, there was still no sign of her husband Sumner, and then there was an unnamed woman who had been boarding with Mabel the previous summer who was also missing. So, you know, so the digging continued. A filled-in old well was excavated, and some small bones were indeed found. But it was quickly determined that those were the remains of a dog, which they assumed had previously fallen into the well. Investigators found no additional remains behind the home, human or otherwise. After an autopsy was performed on Mrs. Trow's badly decomposed body, state toxicologist William J. Teeters reported, quote, There is no indication of any of the alkaloid or organic poisons. While he did not rule out the possibility of poisoning, he also did not see any evidence of it. A crack was observed in her skull, but that was not believed to have been caused by any sort of violence. The conclusion was that Lucinda Trow had died of natural causes about six months prior. She was then given a proper burial next to the grave of her late husband. As a result, Mabel Knox was placed under arrest for illegal burial and for also fraudulently cashing in her late mother's pension checks. Yet, even when confronted with all the mounting evidence against her, Mrs. Knox still insisted that her husband Sumner and her mom had driven off with his cousin Clifford Smith. So, in an effort to leave no stone unturned, investigators attempted to locate Clifford Smith. But you know, there's a lot of Smiths in the United States, so it wasn't that easy. But investigators ultimately narrowed the field down to just two different Clifford Smiths, both who had resided in Lamar's at one point. It was determined, of course, that neither had any connection to the case. Ten days after Mrs. Trow's body was uncovered, 
Authorities learned that Mabel Knox had filed papers in Adele, Iowa on January 21st of 1934, charging her husband Sumner with, quote, cruelty, gambling, non-support, and intoxication. So the reason no one could find them was because the two were divorced in April of 1934. On November 30th, 1938, Mabel Trow Knox pled guilty to the charge of conspiracy. She was admitted as prisoner number 1248 to the Women's Reformatory at Rockwell City on December 12, 1939, and that was to serve out a three-year sentence. Records show that she was now 49 years old, which is oddly nine years older than when she was in prison just seven years prior. I think someone was fibbing about their age. All of Mabel Knox's possessions were auctioned off to help pay her debts. Not only did she need to reimburse the federal government for six illegally cashed pension checks, May also missed numerous mortgage payments, and she failed to pay a number of contractors for work that they had done while building her a new home in 1929. Well, far from enough money was raised to cover everything, but it was reported that her beloved Pekingese was sold for $10. That would be about $175 today, adjusted for inflation. With Maine Knox behind bars and everything she possessed sold off, there was still one unanswered question in this case. Just where was Sumner Knox? Well, the answer to this puzzling question would arrive in the mail on January 11th of 1939. That's the day that Plymouth County Sheriff Frank Scholler received a letter from Sumner himself, which had been dated January 8th. It turns out that Sumner had no clue that anyone had been looking for him. He had been working for several months in the state of Washington and was currently in search of additional work. He explained, quote, So for the past two months I've been practically out of communication as to what is going on. Wow, boy did he miss a lot, huh? He continued, The last I saw Mrs. Trow was the last of April, and she seemed as well as ever in spite of her age. This is certainly a great shock to me, as I really thought a great deal of Mrs. Trow. In early August of 1939, Mabel penned a rambling letter to the Globe Post that seemed to blame everyone but herself for what had happened. Quote, I could never understand why the idea first put forth that I had killed my mother and Mr. Knox was not left to stand. I certainly would never have fought it provided I could have had the death penalty. Of course, no, this sort of thing is the worst kind of living death. On June 23, 1944, Sumner Knox married Edith Haynes in Clark County, Washington. My guess is that he was glad to get as far away from Mabel Knox as he possibly could. He passed away on February 20, 1957, at 64 years of age. Sumner was buried in the Lone Oak Cemetery in Staten, Oregon. As to what happened to Mabel Trow Knox, that has proven very difficult to determine. After serving about 15 months in prison, it was reported that she had become a housekeeper on a large farm in Des Moines. And that's it. I spent hours searching the various databases for more information, but was unsuccessful. It's almost as if she vanished off the face of the earth. Who knows, maybe she changed her last name, she remarried, who knows. 
If anyone has any further information, please let me know. It'd be greatly appreciated. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. In just a moment, Mary Sullivan in person will tell you more about tonight's policewoman case. In the meantime, does your underarm deodorant really protect you and your clothes from offending others? Or are you half safe? Or are you half safe? Don't be half safe. Be arid safe. Use arid to be sure. No other deodorant tested. Only arid stops your perspiration and deodorizes you so completely yet so safely. Only new wonderful arid protects you these three ways. One, arid really protects you from offending. Two, arid really protects your clothes from offending and from stains by stopping perspiration. Three, creamy arid is safe for your skin and clothes. Gentle, antiseptic. More nurses use arid than any other deodorant. Don't be half safe. Don't be half safe. Be arid safe. Use arid to be sure. To be sure. To be sure. That commercial for Arid Deodorant is from the June 29, 1947 broadcast of the radio series Policewoman. The show debuted on the CBS network in 1946 and is considered to be the first radio drama to feature a female detective in its title role. This particular episode was titled The Case of the Steaming Bridegroom. To tell the story of arid deodorant, we need to go back in time to Erie, Pennsylvania in the 1850s. It was around that time that a pharmacist named John Samuel Carter developed a laxative that he called Carter's Little Liver Pills. This product became so popular that by 1859, a four-story manufacturing plant needed to be constructed to meet demand. In 1880, his company became national and changed its name to the Carter Medicine Company. In 1934, Princeton graduate John H. Wallace purchased the laboratory that he was a consulting chemist for, and he renamed it Wallace Laboratories. Shortly after that, his company merged with Carter Medicine and became a division of the company. So in 1935, the company introduced a new Wallace formulation to the market. They called it Arid Deodorant. Now, the product was a smash hit, and the company sales topped $1 million for the first time, and the company name was changed to Carter Products in 1937. Now, the Wallace division of the company became a significant contributor to the success of Carter Medicine, so the decision was made in 1965 to change the name to simply Carter Wallace. In 2001, the company was split with its pharmaceutical and diagnostics divisions. They were sold to Medpoint Capital Partners and then its consumer division, which included the Arid branded products. They were sold to Church and Dwight. Now, if you've never heard of Church and Dwight, they make things like Arm & Hammer, OxyClean, and Trojan branded products. So about a month ago, I gave a talk at Columbia Green Community College, which is in Hudson, New York. And, you know, they asked me to talk my usual stories and so on, and I decided to record it. And I was planning on playing that for you, but the volume was way too low. The talk went great, but the volume of the recording was way too low. So instead of playing the whole thing for you, I'm just going to play you a very small segment. I actually asked the audience a question of the day, like I do in the podcast. So why don't you take a listen? So in the original Scooby-Doo in the original Scooby-Doo animated television series, what was Shaggy's real name? Everybody knows Scooby-Doo, right? 
Okay, what was Shaggy's real name? So we got five choices. Was it one, Edgar Mallory, two, John Reed, three, Jonas Grumby, four, Norval Rogers, or five, Nostradamus Shannon? Now, I should tell you, all these are fictitious names that were used for something uh, in the media. Uh, I thought we'd do it by a show of hands. How many people, you know, think about it for a second, and I'll ask you to raise your hand. For, you can only choose one. You guys can't choose them all. <laughs> in the classroom, they raise their hand for every choice. So, um, okay, how many of Edgar Mallory would be uh, Shaggy's real name? Anybody want to choose that one? No. And by the way, I put my hand up for all of them. Uh, how about John Reed? Anybody for that one? Nobody. Three, Jonas Grumby. Okay, you got one, two, three, four Jonas Grumbies. Anybody for Norville Rogers? One, two, three for Norville Rogers. How about Nostradamus Shannon? Okay, that one seems to be the uh, winner. Okay, well, it's not correct. <coughs> and uh, I will go through all of them and uh, tell you. It, Edgar Mallory is actually the name of the policeman in Monopoly game. Okay? <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, I didn't, I mean, you don't know a lot of these have names. The Lone Ranger's real name was John Reed. Jonas Grumby was the name of the skipper on Gilligan's Island. And it's only mentioned once in the series. Uh, in the first episode, they're listening to the radio uh, where you know, they're saying they've, they've given up hope trying to find them, skippered by Jonas Grumby. So that's the only place it's mentioned in the entire series. And Nostradamus Shannon was a bull on Night Court, for those of you who remember that show. And the last one, of course, that I didn't cover was Norville Rogers, who was uh, uh, shaggy. Now, I did uh, write down a few little trivia things here. The original title of Scooby-Doo was House of Mystery. And it was supposed to be about a band that, uh, in their spare time, solved mysteries. Of course, uh, in the end, that was abandoned. They, didn't, they just solved mysteries. The entire show was modeled after the show Dobie Gillis. Remember Dobie Gillis from, uh, what was that, the late 50s, early 60s, I would guess? Um, and Scooby's original name through almost all the, they actually did a test, uh, they created a pilot of it twice, and it was a failure. In the first two uh, tests of it, uh, it was he, the dog's name was Too Much. Too Much. Uh, they in the end, just at kind of the last minute, they changed to Scooby-Doo after the Sinatra line, Doobie Doobie Doo. Everybody knows that? Everybody, what song is that from? Everybody know? For strangers in the night. Doobie Doobie Doo. Doo Doo I do apologize for the quality of that recording. As I said, it was recorded very low, and I try to amplify it a lot. I also noticed I was speaking quite fast, which is very typical of a native New Yorker like myself. Anyway, if you don't know this, uh, in regards to Strangers in the Night, that was Sinatra's first number one song in 11 years, and he truly hated the song, even though he performed it quite a bit. Here in the United States, it hit number one on July 2nd of 1966, and it knocked the Beatles' paperback writer down to number two, although they would reclaim the title the following week. The studio musicians who played on that song? Well, it was the famed Wrecking Crew, and it included the Lakeland Campbell on rhythm guitar. In other news, I figure with kids headed back to school, I'd give you a few stories from the past that involve the classroom. 25-year-old science teacher H.T. Upsall of Barnesville, Minnesota had his own ideas of how to deal with classroom discipline. As a result, he was arrested on October 21, 1924 and charged with assault. 
you're probably thinking he hit a kid, but it isn't anything like that at all. He was accused of using an electric chair to punish his students. The complaint was filed by the father of 14-year-old Earl Tennyson. He claimed that his son suffered severe burns on his body, quote, through high voltage applied to the chair back on October 16th. In his defense, Upsell said that several students had volunteered to try out the chair, all without harm. Quote, we rigged up a common office chair to test a coil of very high frequency for experimental purposes. He continued, it is impossible to hurt anyone with high frequency. And being a physics teacher, I can confirm that's pretty much true. Upsell warned the boys that if they misbehaved, they would get the chair. Well, three did, including the younger Tennyson, and all willingly accepted the punishment. Hmm, I'm thinking that might be a good demo to do on my last day of teaching before I retire. So, <laughs> did you ever receive a poor grade in school and were just too afraid to let your parents know? Well, this happened to 11-year-old Nellie Stevens of Indianapolis, Indiana. She had been missing from her home for six days and a statewide search failed to find her. Luckily, on October 25, 1937, 15-year-old Frank Carlton followed a barking dog to a spot behind a vacant house and found Nellie lying on a blanket beneath some shrubs. Nellie was rushed to the city hospital suffering from hunger, exposure, and shock, and her feet were frozen, but a full recovery was expected. The cause of this whole mess? Well, Nellie was just too afraid to show her report card to her foster parents. And in our last story for today, on September 18, 1957, 8-year-old Pedro Lozada was sitting in a Chicago classroom when he decided to yank a loose tooth out. He, of course, then showed his tooth to his classmates before, get this, he inserted the tooth into his ear. And that's where the real problem began. The tooth was now stuck in Pedro's ear. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So Pedro brought his unusual predicament to the attention of his teacher, that's Ms. Mary Ford, and at first she didn't believe him, but upon close inspection observed that he was indeed telling the truth. The school nurse was unavailable at the time, so the principal called the police and requested that they take Pedro to the hospital. The police informed the administrator that they needed parental consent to do so, and since they didn't have their permission, the police opted to drive Pedro to his parents' home. 
Now, for whatever reason, his parents turned down the request for medical treatment and opted to extract the tooth themselves. Pedro's mom simply stuck her finger into his ear, and eventually the tooth fell out. Pedro placed the tooth under his pillow that evening, and my guess is that the tooth fairy made a very special visit to the Lozado household that evening. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. Now, my students have been telling me for years that I need a theme song for the podcast, but I have to admit I'm musically handicapped. In other words, I can't sing and I can't play any instrument. So a few weeks ago, one of my former physics students, that's a guy named Lucas Rinaldi, sent me a short theme song, and that's the one that you heard at the beginning of this recording. You can check out his band. It's called Citrus Maxima on YouTube. So far, they have just one video. It's titled Pleased to Meet You, and it's a bit retro with some psychedelia mixed in. It reminds me a bit of the band Oasis in their heyday. So if you have a, you know, a few minutes to spare, just head over to YouTube and do a search for Pleased to Meet You by Citrus Maxima, you know, and have a listen. If you haven't done so, make sure you subscribe to this podcast using your favorite podcast application. And most people do use iTunes. I think something like 90 or 95%. And then you'll be sure to receive future episodes as soon as they come out. I'll admit that I was quite slow at getting this episode together, but I do try to do one per month. I started recording this episode, you know, maybe about two and a half, three weeks ago, but the rain was pouring down so hard at the time that I could hear it in the playback. The next day we're off on vacation, and then it was my wife's birthday or anniversary, you know, whatever else life throws at you. And then next thing you know, I'm way late in getting this done. So anyway, thanks for your patience, and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Bye. <laughs>